once you've got a team of 12 people targeting a market that actually isn't really a market, what do you do? There's a bit of intellectual honesty that you have to have with yourself about how wrong you were at each of these different moments, the things that were wrong so that you can learn from. But once you get past that, you have to make very hard decisions. But there is no option to continue fooling yourself to, to give yourself the chance to thrive. You just have to stay alive. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff, don't do filler, don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Guy Cohen from Wonder, an on-demand secondary research platform, they built the company to 8 million in revenue, realized their ICP was wrong, tore the business down, and rebuilt it again. That's what we break down in this episode. Let's get into it. We kept running into this problem ourselves. We realized this world of knowledge was cut in two. There was primary knowledge, the tacit stuff in our brain, and catalog knowledge, the secondary stuff, cataloged online. And as more things moved online, more things became cataloged. We kept realizing people were attacking the primary space. You've got the GLGs, the alpha sites, now Tegas. You've got a hundred other startups who are trying to play in that expert network space. But nobody was attacking secondary. All our friends in corporate innovation kept running into the same problem with secondary research that consumed most of their time throughout the week. We just wanted to be able to push a button, ask a question, and get a detailed answer that would help us make a smart business decision. An example is, hey, I'm launching a new product line and I really want to understand different pricing models that have worked well for these product lines that used to only exist in Pep's brain or Guy's brain. But now it was catalog. People wrote about it. People shared it in podcasts. So somebody could actually go do that research for me and synthesize it and share the actionable results. And the idea was, what if we don't approach things in the primary way? What if we approach them purely in the secondary way? Could technology plus human beings be a vehicle for solutions here. Could we build the librarian of the web? What would that look like? What would it take? We're obsessed with questions. And we think that people spend more time being curious professionally and personally. They'll make better decisions. Usually things that result in bad outcomes are we didn't ask the right questions. How did you decide what customers to go after? Like whose problems were you solving? We failed at this many times. And this is a part of first time founding. We learned the hard lessons of focus many times over many years. We just said, Hey, everybody uses Google for search, for real search queries, not for like, where should I go get Thai dinner tonight? But like, what's the market size for B2B messaging apps? Because I'm building a pitch deck and I want to go raise a series A. We targeted that, but that wasn't narrow enough. So at first we went after everybody. And because we weren't marketers, we didn't realize how bad of an idea that was. When we started to try to sell to everybody, we realized we can't be everything to everybody. So we got really clinical about who we thought needed wonder. And we mapped 15 industries and different roles within each of those industries. And we went and spoke to a couple hundred people in each of those industries and each of those roles and scored them based on willingness to pay, based on pain of the use case, based on what we could actually deliver on, not what we thought we could deliver on. And three really stood out three different markets. So we narrowed to three and that's when we started going after specifically those different verticals. They were advertising and consulting and, and corporates. And those three things worked okay. I think we realized that three is too much when you're at zero, you have to choose one. That was the first part of figuring out which of those made sense at work. We learned through trial and error. You focused on the, the magnitude of pain the customer felt and then their willingness to pay. What worked in those early days to land customers and grow the business in the zero to one million phase? 
we didn't have any competition at the time. There was no other service where you could push a button, ask a question and say, hey, I need a list of the top 30 suppliers of raw sugar for candy companies in Brazil. Go build me that list. And for each of those things, I need these columns filled. There's no place you could push a button and ask a question and get that answer tomorrow morning. We had to find not just the early adopters willing to take a bet on us. We really had to sell and take the approach of who is willing to risk because we have no proof point on quality. We did not give anything free. We did not take a traditional marketing approach. We made people believe through a proof of concept that we could solve the recurring use case. Each customer we found as a prospect, we would build them a set of underlying models to say, how much could you use this? How much time are you wasting around it? How much money does that translate to for your business? How much frustration? And that's when we were able to get a few of the first Lighthouse customers. And once we got a few of them and we were able to pattern match what could their competitors look like, we were able to then get the next set of customers and then the next one trickled down. But the first 10 were really hard. It was just incredibly difficult to convince people of a problem they don't know they have, of a budget they didn't budget for, and of a solution they've never heard. And so it just took a lot of beating through the nose to, to just keep going and get to a final yes, which is not dissimilar from any hard thing. Was that a cold outbound effort? Were you doing content marketing? How did you reach those customers? For eight years, we never had a marketing person. Everything was word of mouth, but before we had customers, there was no word of mouth. So it was pure cold outbound until the last six months. It's been us finding which partners we think make sense and reaching out to them and getting on the phone with them and having a conversation. A cold outbound usually tends to only work if the annual contract value is of a certain size, at least 10K a year or more. So did you decide to go after bigger companies? We thought we could be a B2C company because the types of questions we answer and the possible competitors are mostly B2C companies. But in the primary space, they were B2B. We quickly realized we wanted to go B2B. To build an outbound function, there had to be some foundational level of ACV that made sense. So we looked at the spectrum of SMB, mid-market, and enterprise. And we said, hey, we can't wait two years to close a $100,000 deal. Let's focus on fast feedback loops to know if we're in the right market with the right users purchasing behavior. We focused on SMBs and we focused on $12,000 ACVs. And that resulted in us building a fairly large SMB business for the first chapter of Wonders history. For anyone who's built an SMB business, you know that comes with scaling a large sales org with high attrition, high churn for the customer. All of those things resulted in us believing that the product served a better part of the market and a different part of the market that we wanted to transition to. So there was this painful transition process to go from that to the new world of Wonder. But in that first stage, we focused on small customers. We could justify building a sales team. You mentioned that you had to speed up market feedback loops. What's an example of how you did that? We don't know the right target. All we're looking for is clues that say you're getting warmer, you're getting colder. That's how we viewed it. Everything was a hypothesis that needed to be clinically tested. We found that the two things we could do to accelerate feedback loops were A, building targeted outreach campaigns and B, having conversations in those without selling. And I think this was a mistake that a bunch of us made in this new stage. In those early days, you're so hell-bent on closing a deal. You're just asking questions that get you to like, is this going to be a yes? But once you're past that, I think treating all of the early calls as discovery without the intent to sell led to much better results. And that's really difficult when you just want to close some revenue. We weren't always 
doing that. You realize it 12 months later when they churn. When you sold something they didn't need, that helped saying, hey, we don't care if we're going to close this client. We want to know if healthcare is the wrong industry for wonder. What are things we would have to know to figure that out? We'd have to know the depth they need from every answer, the tools they use at each stage of that workflow. Once you hit about 1 million in, in revenue, did your strategy change? Yes, in the wrong way. We'd taken on venture capital and we had a smattering of clients when we were at a million in AR. We had some consulting, some ad agencies, some entrepreneurs. We had some corporate innovators and all those different components made us feel that within each of those markets, there was a clear business line. We can scale. So what we did at 1 million was say, hey, we're there. Now it's just a question of how fast can we grow? We did all the things you do when you think you're in figured out mode, which is scale up the team. You spend a bunch of money, focus on headcount growth, which should waterfall into revenue growth. And for what it's worth, I think it worked out decently. We ended up figuring out more than we were convinced of earlier on. And that resulted in a pretty great outcome, but we moved too fast. And that resulted in all the things that happen when you move faster than you're ready, which involves layoffs, customer churn, and all the other stuff. Can you give me a specific example? There's two parts to learning and waking up. You're not as figured out as you thought. The first part is what are the canaries that are telling you you're wrong, right? Let's use an example. The canaries told us we were wrong about the normal funnel metrics. This deal we moved through the pipeline should have closed. Why did it not close? What were things we were wrong? And one time is different from 10 times hearing and seeing, hey, maybe the architecture or the market map of this consulting space is very different than we originally projected. So the, there's a set of canaries we looked for all the way from hiring and retention of employees in the SDRs and the AEs and the CSMs through the customer journey from first touch through renewal. Those canaries initiated red flags and yellow flags that told us, hey, something might be different. The second category is what do you do once you figure that out? Once you know you've got a team of 12 people targeting a market that actually isn't really a market, what do you do? How do you reconcile mentally and practically? Well, what did you do? There's a bit of intellectual honesty that you have to have with yourself about how wrong you were at each of these different moments, the things that were wrong so that you can learn from. But once you get past that, once you internalize that, there's a clear question. Is there some way to support these people and this function in a different way that still serves the business that we can afford? You don't have endless time and you have to make very hard decisions, which we had to make multiple times in Wondrous history. Fooling yourself, um, we never let that be an option because that resulted in what I've seen with a bunch of other companies too, which is you just fly off the cliff. Basically, it's either put the blindfold on and be okay with that outcome or get really real and try to stay alive to fight another day. Because the only thing that matters is being alive to, to give yourself the chance to thrive. That was always the mentality. We just have to stay alive because that time in the market matters more than anything. You told me you guys hit six, six, seven, eight million in revenue and then dipped down to like around 1 million. Yes. Can you tell me about that drop and like what was going on? We had scaled the SMB business to be a fairly, you know, a fairly okay business. And at the point of COVID hitting, we'd scaled, we'd gotten some good run rate numbers and we had a fairly big team. This is all pre-COVID, but there were always inklings that two things didn't feel great about the SMB space. One was what it meant for company building and two was our product right for that space versus more of an enterprise. They're both associated, the two sides of the same coin. It is a very intentional motion and we made the decision early on leading up to COVID and then COVID was the kick in the ass to do it, to say, hey, 
we want to sunset this SMB motion and we want to move up market to enterprise. Where to play and how to win. The two central questions of a business strategy. One, they realize that their where to play, SMBs, is not going to get them to where they want to go. So they did the boldest thing of them all. They tore down the machine that had gotten them to 8 million in revenue. And they refocused on the enterprise market. In the process, seeing a significant drop in revenue before it climbed up again and the decision became justified. Here's the strategy guru Roger Martin on the same. Call the heart of strategy, the where to play, how to win pair of choices. Um, and, and the worst strategy comes from saying, we've decided on our where to play and now let's see, how could we win there? Or we've decided on a way to win, where could we play? What, what that does is sub-optimize. It gets you to what people who talk about optimization theory say, the local peak, right? It's like you get to the top of the 10th tallest mountain in the Himalayas, not mm. Everest. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you allow the two to vary together so that you find, Ooh, this is a where to play. That's perfect for our, how to win. This is a how to, that's perfect for our, where to play. Uh, then you get a great strategy. How is SMB motion different from mid-market enterprise motion in terms of organizational design? There are a few factors. First is on personnel. And so naturally when you're hiring to scale an SMB motion, usually what it looks like SDRs, full cycle reps, AEs, and then CSM. What it looks like in terms of ACV is sub 20,000. And in terms of motion, it looks like incredibly high velocity. Pumping out phone calls, emails, LinkedIn with the intention of closing as many deals as humanly possible. And what that translates to is you need a market pool of prospects that is massive or else you can't get to substantial revenue. Do the math on it. If you close 10% of a market and there's only a thousand customers there, that means you only close a hundred customers. And if the ACV is 20K, you're capped at 2 million in ARR, right? So to build a meaningful business, 10, 20 million, you need to have a massive pool. Yelp works great for that because there are millions of small business owners. Yex works great for that because there are millions of small business owners. But when you're selling to consulting firms, let's say there's only 40 big consulting firms and then there's 200 mid-market consulting firms. So you can't scale a real team. Now, on the personnel side, what it all means is you have to build a really big team. Enterprise teams can close $100 million of revenue with five, six, seven, eight reps, right? Maybe 10, 12 on the high side. To do $100 million with an SMB team, you have to be bigger. On the customer side, there's also all the other attributes. They generally have much tighter budgets. Natural churn is somewhere in 30 to 45% range because businesses go out of business, their budgets get slashed all the things that are on the SMB spokes. On top of that, they are incredibly budget constrained from a usage perspective. When our product was human powered, it wasn't true software. It wasn't 90% gross margins. So because of that, we had a services component that resulted in a lot of friction for customers that are incredibly price sensitive on the SMB side, even though the quality was incredibly high. All of these factors, we spent a lot of time both debating them in our exec meetings, whether or not this part of the market was the right one to go after. We wanted fast feedback. So we didn't want to wait 18 months to close a 100K deal or a 250K deal. But eventually that'll turn into a million dollar deal if you grow it and nurture it and garden it. And so... In the early stage of a startup, it's a race against time. Actually, almost all the time, it's been a race against time. We made this decision, which was there is a huge risk for us to sunset the SMB business and to spin up a new business, which is enterprise. And we had a bunch of big customers, but they were big customers 
that looked like SMBs. They were paying us 20K, but they were a Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. We had a hypothesis, which was, look, with COVID and everything changing in the world, at least we can take this risk and move up market. If we get it right, it will be incredibly valuable for the business. It'll be the way we feel confident scaling for the next 10, 20 years because we think this part of the market's right for the product that we have. So we sunset that. We basically went all the way back down to start from scratch. And this was three years ago. And we went zero to the run rate we're at now. And it's been incredibly humbling because selling to SMBs is entirely different than selling to enterprises. Figuring out the enterprise motion is entirely different. You dipped down to around 1 million, changing your ICP essentially, going after bigger companies. Did you also have to change the way your product worked? We first thought foolishly we didn't need to change the product. Going up market humbled us. There was a different level of quality, a different set of demands, and they had to be met. You just couldn't break into stores. Some things remained the same, but the product had to change a lot. And so we focused on the product and a pricing model had to change uh, to fit the budgeting and the kinds of enterprise processes that allow for this level of purchasing. What's difficult is you've now done this for the better part of five years. You think you're figured out and you think enterprise will look a lot the same. And then you're quickly reminded, no, you're on the figure it out phase. And what you need is a very small team and a powerful set of thinkers to test a bunch of hypotheses and figure out the right ICP. So we went back to the principle that guided us in the early days on the SMB side and applied them to enterprise. The, the big lesson for me throughout these different stages of failures is that you think you're focused, but there's two layers deeper. Is it corporate innovators at healthcare firms? Is it corporate innovators at CPG firms? What does innovator mean? right? Is it corporate strategy? Is it corporate innovation? Is it EIR? Is it CBC? All the lessons narrow the aperture even more than you think you need. You discover a problem to solve and consider building a product for a buyer. Do they have an important, urgent problem you can solve for them? You can use target customer surveys in winter and survey different ICPs. In your customer development service, ask, one, how important is job to be done for you on a scale of one to 10? And two, how satisfied are you with your options to do the job to be done? So if they rank the importance on a 1 to 10 scale either as low or their satisfaction with the current way things are high, basically the conclusion is that this audience does not have a problem. The onset and evolution of AI technologies had a disruptive effect uh, on your business. Can you tell me about that? Is AI a comet that's going to put us into extinction? Or is it a slingshot that's going to accelerate our growth and our prospects? We went through every component of the business because we built a knowledge assembly line. And the new models that have been released, the APIs that we can now leverage, have transformed the product in a way we always wanted it to be, but technologically we're incapable of. And what's been cool is we went through this journey that goes from fear and panic and paranoia all the way down to finding what is that stake in the ground and say, this is what Wonder is, and this is who it's for, and this is what it solves. But that was also tumultuous. And what it resulted in was a really great outcome on changing pricing and how we service customers, which historically we couldn't do because we were so much of a human services component that it relied on hourly models. And for all of us who have lawyers or who have done contracting work, you know all of the misaligned incentives that are baked into hourly structures. And 
for us, we've built amazing technology for the customer. We were able to transition to a cloud pricing model where you buy capacity and it's a subscription that comes with different features and different sets of intelligence units. And all these things make it for an unlimited experience. Whereas before we created a lot of misincentives for customers using the product. Amazing. So you saw the world changing around you and it, it was like a decision time. Do we need to change? Do we need to be proactive about it? Or do we hope for the best? Hope has never been a part of our strategy. I think those scary questions of if this, then wonder is gone. While they scare us in a way that is normal, I think we approach those questions with a level of calmness that allows us to really figure out the best way to come at this. What is the version of the slingshot that makes sense for us? And luckily through a lot of fire in the last nine months, we figured out what does that look like? I'm just really proud and grateful for the team to have gone through that with them. What doesn't work in strategy? One. Brute force, working twice as hard, busting ass. Two, opium, hoping it will suddenly work out. And three, spaghetti testing, just trying random stuff and seeing what works. Instead, you need strategic growth. Strategic growth is internal strengths plus external opportunity. It starts with an honest assessment of where you are now. What's going on? Think through your internal assets and external pains, strengths and weaknesses. Next. Get clear on where you'd like to be in one year, three years, or whatever time period from now. What's a non-negotiable outcome? Then map out the gap between where you are today and where you want to be, and define all the obstacles in the way. What's keeping you from closing the gap? Why aren't you there already? Why haven't the obstacles been addressed before? Getting crystal clear on your obstacles is key. If you get this wrong, you might render most of your plan useless. Next, define a set of initiatives or projects to overcome the previously defined obstacles. Each initiative that your team will work on should be designed to overcome an obstacle. So after implementing each of these new initiatives, you're starting to close the gap between where you are and where you want to go. Besides the lessons of choosing the right ICP, speeding up feedback loops, what other advice would you have for fellow B2B SaaS founders based on your experience? The first one, everybody needs to do sales. There's this concept that sales does sales and everybody else doesn't. I feel that every person in the company should be joining customer calls, engineers especially. There's such an incredible amount of potential to unlock when you have engineers joining customer calls, listening to customer calls, listening to customer recordings, and being thoughtful and aligned with the metric that matters to the business, which is revenue and a profit. Um, don't silo sales and just make revenue a sales job. It's not. It's the whole company's job, period. Um, and I've seen a bunch of founders, technical founders, who've never been in a sales call for the first couple of years, and they're making product decisions about what to build and how to build. And so I think that voice the customer um, and being uh, a singular org that owns sales together, I think is really important, especially in the early days. I wish we did more of that. The second thing is the worst mistakes come when you fool yourself, think you figured things out. The other one I'd add is choosing and committing early. You think you can go after a bunch of different people. You choose one and realize you're wrong about, but how much data are you operating off that you're wrong? Right? Is it too thin of data? And so I think choosing and committing for a long enough time, once you've made the choice, both on the spectrum of SMB enterprise and then ICP, I think that's the only way to win. So what are the three things that have made Wander kick ass? One, they focused on speeding up feedback loops. Treating all of the early calls 
as discovery without the intent to sell led to much better results. Two, they weren't afraid to make scary decisions to change their where to play and how to win. We made the decision to sunset this SMB motion and move up market to enterprise. Three, they always went back to the first principles questioned everything and didn't assume that they had figured it out. In my experience, the worst mistakes come when you fool yourself, think you figured things out. And that's how you win. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.